everyone. Good morning. It is a joy to be with you. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors at Highland, but I'm usually up at our Merrill campus. And so uh, they let me out of Merrill to come down and spend some time with you this morning. And it's my privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. We're going to continue in our Colossians series. We're in chapter 1, verses 24 through 29 today. And so if you want to read along in your Bible app or in your Bible, uh, you can open to Colossians chapter 1. If you are working in the New City Catechism with your kids at home, if you're uh, still uh, sticking with it, we are on question 33 this week. And it's a very relevant question, not only to Galatians, but our passage today. Uh, Question 33 is this. Should those who have faith in Christ seek their salvation through their own works or anywhere else? And of course, the answer is no. Everything necessary for salvation, to salvation, is found in Christ. Let us pray before we dive into God's word. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, you are big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now many of you probably know the story of the late William Wormbrandt, a Romanian pastor who has suffered deeply for his faith and whose suffering has benefited countless others. In 1948, Wormbrandt was arrested and imprisoned for his opposition to the Romanian communist regime, and he was arrested because of his vocal opposition to them. The brutality that he fought against is the brutality he then experienced for the next 14 years in prison as he faced solitary confinement and often beatings and torture. And yet through it all, Wormbrandt remained true to his faith. He preached the gospel, and his suffering in prison It provided credibility to his gospel witness before others, and it also fortified other Christians who were in prison in their faith. His suffering in prison helped, it benefited, it fortified many others, but the benefits of his suffering may not be known until eternity, and it certainly that wasn't the extent of how they helped others. Because it wasn't until after he was released from prison that his suffering really started to impact many, many more people. After he was released, him and his wife fled the country and they founded the organization many of us know called the Voice of the Martyrs. Now this organization, it provides support and advocacy for Christians who suffer for the faith all over the world. And they call churches to support one another, to pray for one another especially those who are experiencing affliction in Christ. Voice of the Martyrs, as they report on this and call Christians to respond, they provide credibility to the collective Christian witness, and they also fortify believers like you and I in our faith to remain steadfast and true to Jesus no matter what faces us. And you know Wormbrandt's story of his suffering and his ministry of the gospel, it's really a modern-day example of what Paul did and what Paul himself writes about in our text today. We're in Colossians 1, 24 through 29, and Paul today writes about his suffering, his stewardship, and then he writes about a great big secret. Paul's suffering, his stewardship, and a great big secret. But first, let's remind us where we've been in the letter to the Colossians. Paul wrote this letter during one of his many imprisonments. He's in jail once again for proclaiming throughout the world that Jesus is the Christ and rightful king of all. 
And really, this is Paul's life. He preaches the gospel, he gets flogged. He announces the kingdom, he gets run out of town. He preaches Jesus, and he gets thrown into prison. And Jesus himself predicted this life for Paul. You remember? In Acts chapter 9, Jesus said this about Paul. He said, he is my chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, Jesus knew that the domain of darkness would retaliate, it would fight back as his name and reign expands throughout the world. And yet Paul reported in this letter that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing everywhere. Even in prison, Paul doesn't stop ministering the gospel, writing even this letter to the church in Colossae. Now, the Colossian church was a healthy church. We've learned about that the last few weeks. But Epaphras, the man who founded it, he told Paul about how healthy they are. He told them about their deep allegiance to Jesus. He told them about their deep love for all the saints. And this prompted Paul to begin his letter with two prayers for the church in Colossae. The first prayer was a prayer of thanksgiving. He thanks God for their deep faith and their deep love for all the saints. And in the second prayer... He asks God to grow them in a knowledge so that they might persevere in a life worthy of the Lord. This is a healthy church, but Epaphras also told Paul about some false teachers in the city. You see, in Colossae, there were some false teachers who were teaching the Jesus plus gospel. That is, Jesus plus secret knowledge or Jesus plus Jewish, Jewish culture. And so Paul writes this letter to fortify these Christians against any such false teaching. And it's why after his two prayers for them, he introduces and records the Christ hymn, a beautiful hymn about Jesus. And in the first verse, it's all about how Jesus is the author and king of creation. In the second verse, it's all about how Jesus is the author and king of new creation. Creation and new creation are all about him. Paul's message is loud and clear. It is Jesus plus nothing. He is the author. He is the king. Jesus is all they need. He is superior to others, and he's not only sufficient, he is supreme. Paul writes to fortify this healthy church against any heresy that would put something other than Jesus at the center of their allegiance. And so today we come to the part of the letter where Paul tells them a little bit more about himself and his ministry for their sake. Let me read Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Paul wrote this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I am filling up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Our text today is structured like a sandwich. 
a chiasm for you Bible nerds out there, where the bread of the sandwich is all about Paul's sufferings. And then when we move in in the passage to the cheese, we encounter his stewardship of the word. He's been given the ministry of the word. And right in the middle, the ham is all about the secret of God that has been now revealed. And so our plan today is to work our way from the outside of the passage in, from Paul's suffering to his stewardship to the great big secret in the middle. So let's start with our outer verses. You see, Paul begins and ends this section talking about his suffering, about his struggles, and how they are a source of joy for him. Now, we know Paul's struggles, countless beatings, multiple shipwrecks, often without food. He writes this letter from prison. If anyone has reason to complain, it is Paul, and yet he says he rejoices in his sufferings. It makes you wonder, is he sick? Has he taken one too many blows to the head? Does he enjoy pain? Not exactly. The reason he rejoices in his suffering, he says, is because he suffers for the Colossian Christians. His suffering is for them, and he writes, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now this needs to be carefully unpacked. Here's the logic of what Paul just said. There is something lacking in Christ's afflictions for the church. And Paul is rejoicing that in his physical suffering for these Gentile Christians, he is filling up that lack. Now, this might sound strange. It might sound perhaps even wrong. That is, if we don't understand the Old Testament prophets and other Jewish thinking that anticipated afflictions and sufferings in these last days. But first, let's start with what Paul is not saying. Paul is not implying that there is anything lacking in Christ's sacrifice or atoning death on the cross. And this should be obvious to all of us. Because in all of Paul's letter, he puts Jesus front and center. He emphasizes the sufficiency of the cross. Just a few passages, verses before our passage, he wrote this. The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing lacking in this salvation. Through faith, these Colossians have been fully redeemed. They've been released from sin. They've been ransomed from the domain of darkness. They've been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. Paul is not suggesting that he participates in this great victory even a little. It is Christ's alone. So what is Paul saying? What lack is there in Christ's afflictions that Paul in his suffering is contributing to? Well, to answer this question, like I said, we need to understand a little Old Testament and Jewish thinking that shaped Paul's own. In the Hebrew scriptures and in other Jewish writings of the time, there was an expectation that afflictions, pains, and woes would accompany the last times. Some called it the birth pangs of Messiah. And this is why a better translation than Christ's afflictions would be Christly afflictions or messianic afflictions, a certain type of affliction. So here's an example. In Daniel chapter 7, in a vivid dream, Daniel sees beastly kingdoms. They're bringing chaos and injustice to the earth. One beastly king, he wages war against God's people. That is, until God himself comes. He carries out justice. And then all the kingdoms of the earth are given to the Son of Man and his people forever. 
See, throughout this chapter, the Son of Man figure, the promised Messiah, is so closely associated with the saints of God that together they suffer and together they reign. Another example of this is the suffering servant figure in the prophet Isaiah. Sometimes this title, suffering servant, is applied to Israel. Other times it's applied to the promised Messiah. And throughout the book of Isaiah, the identity of God's people are so closely associated with the promised Messiah that their identities all but merge. And so the New Testament authors, they pick this idea up and they apply it to Jesus and his people in the time between his first and second coming. They know tribulation accompanies God's kingdom as it faces the dominion of darkness in these last days. This is what Jesus himself said. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul and Barnabas, as they were encouraging believers to stay true to the faith, in Acts 14, they said this, it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In Romans 8, Paul wrote this, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He also wrote this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Second Corinthians, Paul wrote this, We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. You see, Jesus so closely associates with his people that he suffers in his people and he reigns in his people. He suffers in the members of his body here on earth and nobody knows that better than Paul. Because you remember what Jesus said to him when he was persecuting the church, when he was putting to death members of Christ's body. What did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus entered into suffering for our sake and he still suffers in us. And it proves that he is advancing his name and reign through us. And Paul is rejoicing that he gets to experience and participate in these sufferings for the sake of the church. Knowing that it is indeed Christ living through him in his ministry. It's why our last verse today is this. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul rejoices in his sufferings for the church because in them and through them, he knows that he is in union with Christ and he is assured that Christ is indeed working through him, plundering the kingdom of darkness, calling Gentiles all over to believe the gospel. Paul rejoices in his sufferings and that brings us to our second S, stewardship. Paul rejoices in his suffering for the church to present everyone complete, everyone mature in Christ as he stewards the word. Paul suffers that he might steward what has been given to him, namely the ministry of the word for the church. And so working our way to the center, let's reread verses 25 and 28. Again, Speaking of the church, Paul writes this, of which, of the church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In both of these verses, Paul is describing the ministry that's been entrusted to him for their sake, namely, to make the word of God fully known. Paul is a steward of this ministry. It belongs to God, and he suffers to be a faithful administer of it, to present all mature in Christ. Now, this idea behind the phrase, make the word of God fully known, it doesn't simply mean teach a lot of people a lot of Bible. Rather, it means to fulfill the mission of God's word throughout the world. You see, Paul's mission, you'll recall, is to the Gentiles. He's been entrusted with the word that it might bear fruit in the whole world among all people. He is God's chosen instrument manifesting the power of the gospel beyond the family of Israel in the hearts of all the families of the world. And you know, personally, it makes me think of planting mustard seeds. I don't know about you. This makes you think of planting mustard seeds. I'm just kidding. I don't know anything about mustard seeds. I don't know if I've ever even, I've probably seen one. But Jesus knew a lot about mustard seeds, or so it seems. He compared the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. A seed that when it starts, it's the smallest of all seeds, but as it grows, it grows into the largest of all garden plants. You see, Paul sees himself as a steward of this, sowing the seeds of the word to all nations, that the gospel of the kingdom might grow and bear fruit everywhere among every one. And isn't this the point in verse 28? Did you notice the universality of Paul's ministry? He wrote this, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. His emphasis on all people makes for a rather awkward sentence, repeating everyone, everyone, everyone. But it reveals the scope of the gospel and the scope of his calling and his ministry to present everyone, all Christ followers, mature in Christ. Let's take a moment to understand what it means to be mature in Christ. Now, some of our English translations, they'll say mature in Christ. Others will say perfect in Christ. The problem is perfect is too strong a word and mature is too weak a word. In context, this word doesn't mean moral perfection, nor does it imply some vague sense of moral progress of just being better than you were yesterday. Rather, this word means wholeness, completeness, fullness. Its opposite might be divided or partial or half-hearted. And so in his ministry, Paul struggles to present every believer fully devoted to Jesus. He toils to see believers undivided in their allegiance to Christ. The maturity for which he suffers is that all believers would take hold of, not with one hand, but with both hands, the redemption that is in Jesus. To be in Christ is a common phrase for Paul, and it means being fully united to Jesus because it is in union with Christ that all the blessings and benefits of God are available to his people. Now, one more thing to note in this section. Notice what Paul does to present all believers mature in Christ. He warns everyone and he teaches everyone. It's what we see in all his letters, is it not? He always puts Christ front and center, and then he warns and he teaches believers. Friends, have you ever thought about how the church is largely an educational institution? I mean, just think about it. We have 
Sunday school. We have Bible studies. We have vacation Bible school. The church has been the driving force behind higher education in our country's history. It might surprise you to know Harvard, Yale, and Princeton were all founded as Bible seminaries. Even in Jesus' great commission, he includes instruction to go teach all the nations all that he has commanded. And if you follow Jesus, the Bible calls you a disciple, a word that means student, a word that means apprentice. And so correction and instruction are at the very core of what it means to follow Jesus. And it seems, at least according to Paul, they are the means by which we might be presented mature, perfect in Christ. Paul takes this stewardship very seriously, and he suffers very deeply for it. As we work to the the center of our passage today, and we've considered Paul's suffering and his stewardship, we see that Paul rejoices in his suffering for the church, that he might present everyone mature in Christ as he stewards the word. But what is the word? We've seen what it accomplishes. It manifests the gospel of the kingdom throughout the world. It makes believers mature in Christ. But what is the word? What is the contents of this message that Paul has been entrusted with? Well, here's all I'm going to tell you up front. It used to be a secret. It used to be a secret. Suffering stewardship, lastly, the secret. Let me reread our center verses. Paul said his ministry was to make the word of God fully known, verse 26 and 7, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the mystery? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. To whom has it been revealed? To God's saints, surprise, including Gentiles. When was this a secret? Well, for ages and generations since eternity passed. If it sounds like this is the climax of our passage today, if it sounds like it's talking about the climax of human history, then we've understood it correctly. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the hidden plan of God. Since eternity, and it has now been revealed to God's saints, including Gentiles. We need to break this down. Mystery, that might sound like a strange word to use, but know that in the New Testament, the word mystery always means something like a truth hidden by God, a divine secret, something that would be impossible for us to know or discover unless God himself makes it known. And so the divine secret that's been hidden for ages, Paul says now, in the age of Christ, has been revealed. It is now an open secret. You see, the false teachers in Colossae, they were teaching the Colossians that you need secret revelation or you need secret knowledge in addition to Jesus. And Paul says, no way. Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's the great and grand mystery of God, the secret of God that's been hidden for ages and generations And you all already know it because its glorious riches have been revealed in you. Now, the background of this mystery language is indeed Daniel chapter 2. When the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, called the Septuagint, in the whole Old Testament, this word mystery was used only nine times in translation. Once in Daniel 4 and eight times in Daniel chapter 2. And so when we encounter this word mystery or secret 
in the New Testament, it should draw to our mind Daniel 2. Daniel, in this chapter, he reveals the meaning of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Here's what he says. He says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Daniel goes on to explain the mystery of the king's dream, that after his kingdom, three others would come. But in those latter days, he says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. The idea that God has secrets, the idea that God has mysteries that only he can reveal largely comes from this chapter, Daniel 2. And the New Testament authors, Jesus himself even, pick up on this idea often in Scripture. Jesus himself said this, To you has been given the secret, the mystery of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Paul picks this idea up several times in his writings, and he always centers the heart of the mystery right on the person and work of Jesus. And so in Romans, he writes this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed. Or in Ephesians, he's speaking about preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. Paul says this, it was to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. To be sure, there are other mysteries, but this is the big one, and it's no longer a secret. And by speaking about his word, his message, the ministry that has been entrusted to him, by speaking about it in this way, Paul shows us that God's plan has been consistent and unchanging through the ages, and yet how it still ends up being a surprise in the end. There's continuity with the past, but there's a radical surprise in how it's all fulfilled. Partially revealed in the past, God promised to Abraham that it would be through his family, through his seed, through his offspring, that all the families of the world would be blessed. That redemption would indeed come through Israel and then through the royal line of David. But the great big surprise, now that the mystery has been fully revealed, is that this would all come to focus in and set on just one faithful Israelite. That the blessings and promises of God would come through one faithful Israelite through the life, death, and resurrection of the Jewish Messiah. And surprise number two, surprise number two, now that the secret has been fully revealed, that in Messiah, both Jew and Gentile are included in the family of God. The body of Christ made up of Jew and Gentile is not plan B. It is the mystery of God hidden for ages and generations that has now been revealed to God's saints, including Gentiles. A multi-ethnic global family through which the Messiah reigns is the now open secret of God. And that should make us say, praise be to God. And Paul's shorthand for all of this is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The indwelling presence of Jesus by the power of the Spirit in Gentile believers is the mystery now made known. In the Old Covenant, Gentiles were excluded, 
But in the new covenant era, alongside the remnant of believing Jews and on equal footing are Gentiles. And together, the riches of the glory of this mystery have been made known, and it is their hope. Jesus Christ living in them is the certainty that they will experience future glory together. The open secret of God is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now through this passage, we've considered Paul's suffering, we've considered his stewardship, we've considered the secret. Paul rejoices in his suffering for the church, for Christ's body, to present everyone mature, everyone complete in Christ, as he stewards the word which is the mystery now revealed, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul rejoices in his suffering to present everyone mature in Christ by stewarding the word, which is the now open secret, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so to conclude, I want us to consider a few responses that the Holy Spirit might desire from each one of us today. First, I want to start with a difficult one, the topic that brought Paul joy, but it's still a difficult one to talk about, the topic of suffering. Specifically, Christly suffering. Now, it might sound strange, but I think the Holy Spirit wants us here at Highland to suffer more for our faith. You heard all the passages I read earlier about entering the kingdom of God through tribulations, that we carry the death of Christ in us so that the life of Christ may be manifest in us, or that we will be glorified one day in Christ provided we suffer with him. You see, suffering like Jesus is not the exception for those who identify with Jesus. It is the expectation. It really shouldn't surprise us since the church has been literally founded on the death of our Messiah. It shouldn't surprise us one bit that there'd be suffering in these last days if we understand what we're part of, what we've been called to. Because Jesus is on a mission in the world right now. He's plundering the dominion of darkness. He's confronting injustice. He's trampling enemies underfoot. And he's calling many sons to glory. Jesus is doing this. Jesus is doing this through his people. And so with Paul, we all need to desire to say, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You see, Jesus is advancing his name and reign through his saints And we better believe that the domain of darkness will retaliate. We better believe that evil is going to fight back, I guess that is at least, if we truly live for Christ and identify with him. Because to be sure, we can avoid afflictions. We can live comfortable lives. It's actually really easy. Just live a life that looks like the world. Blend in at work. Blend in at school, blend into American culture, and you won't experience tribulation. You won't suffer. You'll be welcomed. You'll be praised by the world. But that's like storing up treasure here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. When we take seriously what we're a part of, when we take seriously what we've been called to, announcing Christ alone as Lord, denying the flesh to live in obedience, Loving others sacrificially, even our enemies, to the point that it might kill us. If we take this seriously, it's going to hurt. We are going to suffer. 
If we take this seriously, we can be certain that we will participate in messianic, Christly afflictions. But if Christ's afflictions unleash the blessing of God to the nations, you better believe that God is more than capable of bringing about nothing less than new creation through our suffering. And so girls and boys, ladies and gentlemen, as we experience retaliation, as we experience tribulations in this world for identifying with Christ, we too can rejoice for two reasons. First, when we suffer like Christ, it proves our union with Christ, that we are a member of his body. We will indeed suffer like Christ if we indeed belong to him. And rejoice number two, we can rejoice in Christly afflictions because it means that Christ is at work in and through us. Christly suffering reveals that he is on the move advancing his name and reign among all nations. And you better believe as we experience suffering, we can identify with Jesus and be assured that he is at work in us, kicking evil's butt. A second response that the Holy Spirit might want for each of us today is for us to pursue maturity in Christ. The Holy Spirit loves it when we are wholeheartedly, single-mindedly living towards Jesus. And Paul, he toiled, he struggled, he suffered to present everyone mature in Christ. And he did this, remember, through two things. By warning everyone and teaching everyone. Dear friends, each one of us needs warning and instruction in our life if we're going to grow into a deep union with Jesus because our hearts are idol factories and everything in this world is fighting for our affections. One of God's greatest blessings in this life is to be part of a close-knit community of believers who are striving together for each other's maturity in Christ. I know this because I've experienced it. I do experience it. And I promise you that if you don't have that, you're missing out. I promise you that this is a glorious gift of God. Having people in your life who are committed to you, who love you, who want to see you more like Christ, who will call you out, who will offer accountability, who will rebuke you if you get out of line, is a glorious reality of being a Christ follower. Now, this might sound scary, to be in such vulnerable relationships with others, but it's not scary. It's beautiful. Hundreds of people today here at Highland, hundreds of people are hearing this message. And we are a grace community. We have all been forgiven an impossible debt, and we must be those who offer this same kind of grace to others. And so to the person who is here today, who doesn't have close-knit, vulnerable, godly relationships, I commit to you today that when you seek out this type of community here at Highland, you will be met with love and patience and commitment when you seek out this type of love and community here. I assure you on behalf of every Christ follower here that you won't be kicked to the curb for the dirtiness inside of you because we all have it. And it's why we need each other. We all need brothers and sisters who know us so well that they'll offer that encouragement we need when we struggle. They'll offer that rebuke or warning we need when we struggle, when we get out of line. And they love us way, way too much to keep silent. The Holy Spirit loves it when followers of Jesus are wholeheartedly, single-mindedly living towards Jesus. And much of this comes through warning 
and teaching. And so friend, if the extent of your Christian life is coming to church a Sunday or two a month, then I fear for you, but I also hurt for you because abundant life is still laying right before you. I love you too much to not warn you today that you are in danger if you don't have regular times of biblical instruction in your life. You are in danger if your afflictions are divided between cabin life, school sports, politics, weekend partying, and Jesus. You are in danger if you're not part of a small group or have people in your life, accountability partners who have deep access to your heart. And you are in danger when worldly movies, music, and podcasts have much more of your attention than does the Bible. Dear sister or brother, maturity, perfection in Christ ought to be our desire, and so we need to seek out Bible study, life group, accountability in our life. It will require saying no to other things, but it's so we can all say yes to the right things. Well, lastly, I think the Holy Spirit would want all of us who follow Jesus here today to marinate, to soak in, to meditate on the glorious mystery of God that has been now revealed to his saints. The Holy Spirit wants us to marinate on the secret that has been long hidden, but now has been revealed to us, Jesus himself in us, the hope of glory. You see, this was the plan. This is the goal. This is the mystery that is now revealed that the divine in the Jewish Messiah would unite himself to us. Let me say that again because it is the secret open for us that the divine in the Jewish Messiah would unite himself to us. Without losing our identities, we've been wrapped up in his by faith, we've been united so closely to Jesus and him so closely to us that marriage was designed in the beginning to be an illustration of this union where two become one. And if Jesus has fully united himself to us and us to him, then we have full assurance of glory. We have full assurance of future glory because it's the logical outcome. If Christ is in us, then glory what could stop it? What could jeopardize it? What could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? What is ours is his. What is his is ours. And so our sins are his. His father's love is ours. Our sufferings are his. His life is ours. Our frailty is his. His glory is is ours. Our stains are his. His righteousness is ours. Sisters and brothers, if you leave here with just one thing today, I would want it to be this. The mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, that has now been revealed among God's people, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Put yourself in that slot. Say it in your head. It is Christ in me. It's Christ in Adam, the hope of glory. Dear friends, Jesus is in you, and that, my friends, is the hope of glory. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word, and we thank you for this mystery that has now been revealed to us, your people. That, Father, you have made us one with yourself through Jesus, that being in him, we have the full assurance of future glory, the full assurance of all your plans and promises, that we are co-heirs with Christ. 
Father, thank you for this glorious mystery that you've made known. Thank you for this glorious truth that we might live in it, that we might become enthralled with this identity that we have in our union with Jesus. And so, Father, as we suffer for him, as we live for him, I pray that you would give us power by your spirit to rejoice because of our union with him, that you are at work through us. And Father, I pray that for each of us, we'd seek out this union, that we would grow into maturity with our Savior. Father, give us all that we need, the people in our lives, the instruction, the warnings, that we might be presented with all your saints mature in Jesus at his appearing. Father, we love you and we thank you for this family that you've given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.